You're listening to the Sourced Property Podcast. Hello and welcome to another Sourced Property Podcast. This week, as well as producer M, we have Tina Walsh. So, hello Tina. Hi, thank you for the welcome. You're very welcome. And so, you're known as the Compliance Queen. And if you looked at my Facebook post asking people for questions, that's exactly how I described you. Now, you are incredibly knowledgeable about compliance, but your knowledge of compliance started when you started a sourcing company, right? So tell us a little bit how, about how you started a sourcing company. It came about quite by accident. My husband, Tony, and I have always been really interested in, in property. And when Tony was going to retire from the police force, which was two and a half years ago now, we wanted a business that we could run together and we love property, but we didn't know what to do. And we came across a guy and attended one of his events and ended up working with him. He became our mentor. And he said, okay, you don't want to invest because in 2005, we invested and lost heavily with the drop in the market went kaput. We lost heavily on property investments. So we've been stung financially. And whilst we still love property, we didn't have the funds to do it. And he said, okay, you don't want to invest personally. What about property sourcing? And I said, okay, what's that? And his comment was, go out and research it and come back and tell me. And that was where it all started. And that was January 2012. And I spent the next 10, 11 months crewing for our mentor because I knew that high net worth investors were working with him. And I knew that if I could be seen standing next to him, the no like trust barrier would be broken down a lot easier. And that's how we picked up our first investors to work with us and build portfolios in the Northwest. And during that period of time when I was doing that, I studied the legislation and regulation around estate agents and adapted it for use in the sourcing sector for myself. So you've gone from starting out in property sourcing to being the queen of compliance in just a matter of six years. Yeah. (laughs) That is quite a rise to the top. So you've been involved in it for six years. So staying with the sourcing at the moment, can you tell us about any trends that you've seen or any differences that you've seen in comparison to when you started uh, as a comparison to now? I think when I started, most of the investors that we work with, probably because of the level of my knowledge at the time, were the standard vanilla buy-to-lets, Chris, you know what I mean, the two-bed, the three-bed. And prior to coming into the property sector, I was involved in the healthcare sector and in acquisitions and mergers. And I knew that there was a call for them wanting properties and or land there. So I kind of mixed that in with it as well. So I learned about leases and about development sites from the healthcare perspective and expanded that way. And as you know, and I'm sure you teach your trainees as well, that doors open when you speak to people at a certain level Mm. and you're given opportunities that you think, what do I know about that? Never mind, say yes, and then work it out later. And that was kind of how I've worked and expanded the business. And now we source anything from a one-bedroom flat up to uh, multiple hundred-acre development sites based on what our clients want because we source to order. So we don't find a BMV deal out there and then punt it out onto Facebook groups. We bring our investors through a registration process Dependent on what they want, we work with them and work out exactly what it is that they want and then we source to order for them. So at any given time, we can be sourcing a flip or a buy-to-let portfolio. We could be sourcing portfolios of lease option, HMOs or developments. So that's really interesting and I'm sure that's going to be interesting for people that are starting out on their property journey, that you start with the investor. 
Start with the investor, find out what they want, satisfy their needs by going out there and targeting exactly what you're looking for. Because a lot of people, I'm sure you've seen in the forums, they ask, what do you start with? Do I start with property? Do I start with, with investors? But you've always done it by starting with investors first. I think because I got the investors by appearing with the mentor at the time who was very well known, the investors came first. But for me, if you have an investor and you know exactly what they want, if you dot the I's and cross the T's on it, you've got almost a guaranteed buyer. Don't get me wrong, it doesn't always go over the line and things can go wrong. But in the main, as long as we dot the I's and cross the T's as to what the investor wants, you're not out there with what you think is a really good deal, but not everybody else will agree with you. So when you started, you asked for more vanilla sort of deals, like you said, yes. just a sort of standard yeah. yield play. So how has that changed? What are people looking for now? How are they being more demanding than just looking for vanilla now? Or is it that you found that vanilla doesn't work anymore? And you've got to be a bit more creative in order to satisfy that, whatever their demand is. Let's call it an 8% yield. At the moment, we have eight investors that are live with us that have come through the full registration process. And we have a couple that are looking for flips. Also a couple that they can hold and do minimos with. We have a couple of high net worth investors who are looking for large development sites for leisure for residential development and for commercial development. We have another person who wants to build up a buy-to-let portfolio. With regard to the vanilla buy-to-lets, I think for the last 12 months, and probably because what happened in the section about them not being able to offset the interest on mortgages anymore, Chris, it went quiet for a little while. And I think people were assessing if it was a worthwhile sector to still invest in, and if so, how they could do it. What we're finding is they're coming back, but they're coming back and they're setting up SPVs to hold them under or special purpose vehicles, i.e. a limited company specifically for holding the buy-to-let properties under. And they are coming back into the market, but they are looking for really good rental yields Mm. and cash flow. They don't seem to be too bothered about the long-term capital gain, as long as it's not in an area where you need a police escort to get the rent from. Maximising the return on their investment Cash flow seems to be king at the moment from the people that are coming through to us for the buy-to-let sector. And the capital gain is seen as a as a sorry, an aside. An, an aside. If if they get it, it's great. Um, if they don't, the cash it cash flows and it works for them anyway. I really love how you drop in little things that sort of set you apart from a lot of other property sources. And you might have noticed this if you're listening closely, but that was investors that have been through the full registration process. I can't think of many other people that I speak to who are independent property sources that talk about a full registration process and I think I mentioned this the first time I ever sat through um, one of your presentations for our franchisees here at Sourced I started smiling and I'm not sure what you thought I was doing uh, but I was smiling halfway through your presentation and you said you asked me you called me out on it and said you know why are you smiling ever said something funny I said no I just I just really enjoy how much you love all the stuff that you're talking about because any of our franchisees ask any questions and Tina will know the answer immediately from the top of her head, which I find incredible, really, when you consider how big the compliance side of property sourcing is. But from having that um, sourcing company, how did that then lead you into compliance and teaching other people about compliance? When I was learning myself, I realised that there was nothing out there. I literally sat and read legislation. 
Uh, I don't know how I did it now, but I did at the time. I sat and read legislation. Of course, my police background kind of helped because we had to learn verbatim. So I guess I I read and understand probably easier than a member of the general public would do. And I realised that there was nothing out there for sources to teach them. I knew that there was a compliance requirement, but certainly the property sourcing courses at the time that there were, and there were very few and far between of them, weren't covering it. So I had the idea of writing a book on the subject, and I had this idea sitting there. What year would this have been? So if you started this, sourcing in 2012, what year would this have been? 2013. Really? I probably thought that there was a, a need for it to be actually written. But I was building the business, and we still had sort of children at home at that point in time, so I was sort of a full-time mum as well, and you can't have time to do everything. And then I attended another event with some people to expand my knowledge on working directly with vendors and vendor conversion and that kind of thing. Because you can, I always believe in continuing to educate yourself mm. and listening to how other people do things. You may not agree with everything, but you can always pick up snippets and you think that's a really good idea. I'm going to include that in how I work. And I attended a course for that. And the guy that was giving the course said to me, you really need to write this book. You really need to set yourself aside as the expert because your knowledge on it is phenomenal. It needs to be in a book to help others. Have you ever thought about doing it and coaching? And at that, I started to shake and said, oh, coaching, I'm not sure about that. Training, that, that isn't really my thing particularly. That wasn't what I was. I write the book and the person said, well, if you write the book, you really need to give the backup for it. So have a think about it. So I thought about it and I actually chatted with a lady that was really, really good at publishing books about what was needed. And she became my mentor for writing the book. I'm a hard taskmaster with myself and I set myself six months to do it. She chuckled at me and now I know why. (laughs) Uh, It took me 18 months. (laughs) And when did you start writing the book? I had a basic manuscript when I went down to see the lady that became a mentor for the writing, which would have been in 2015. I'd sort of written out the basics, if you like. It was a big, thick manuscript. And the first question that she asked me was, what voice are you going to write it in, Tina? Well, that just floored me. Uh, what, what what do you mean? Well, are you writing it in third party? Are you doing it as a chatty, like a communication type book? And I said, well, how I am, which is trying to write it in plain English and only writing what they need to know to understand, but enough to give them a really, really good start, but also from two perspectives, which she wasn't happy with. She said, you need to write it just from one. And I said, no, it's going to be from two. And we're going to have subsections at the end of the chapter to take away tips for both sources and investors so that they can carry the book around with them as a reference book. And if they just want to dip into money laundering and what is key to them in that, then they can do. And there's tips at the end of it so they don't have to read the whole chapter again. And that was that was in my head before I even wrote it. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but that was in my head. So you've had this book published for a couple of years now? It was published in October 2017. I can't believe it's that long ago. Oh, right. So about 14, 15 months from right now. Yes. And you've been touring. Well, I say touring. You've been educating people. You've been coming to um, networking events and, and talking about the book and talking about compliance since then. Or did you start doing that before you published the book? I started doing it from the summer before the book was published to just try and raise awareness for the book launch, uh, for one thing, but also because I wanted to try and start raising awareness and make people aware of me and my ultimate goal, which is to gain 100% compliance in the uh, sourcing sector, which I see as separate from the estate agency sector because of how we work. Although we're governed by the same regulations per se, 
how we have to interpret them in some instances is slightly different because of how we work. And the goal is for the 100% compliance and to protect investors because I get a lot of investors coming to me that have been, to put it bluntly, royally fleeced by unscrupulous sources. And this has got to stop. We need to see ourselves as the professionals that we should be. If you go to a solicitor or an accountant and you want to work with them, you might get a 30-minute free chat with them. But at the end of that, they expect you to sign their terms of business before they will provide you with a service. Why should sources see themselves as anyone any different than that? We are professionals. We have rules that govern us. A lot of rules. So apart from individuals' ethics and morality, if you do find an unscrupulous sourcer, who would be the body that would police that sourcer? The overall body for the estate agency sector is the National Trading Standards Estate Agency Team, or NTSEAT, as I like to call them. The problem that investors have if something has gone wrong, if the sourcer isn't compliant and registered with one of the two property ombudsmen, they've got very limited places that they can go The one thing that they can do is go to local trading standards and complain possibly about the fact that they aren't registered with the appropriate bodies for which each time someone is caught, it's up to a £5,000 fine for each time you're caught and for each registration. The problem that we have at the moment, and this will be changing, is that we've been invisible as property sources for a long time in the sector. And because of what I'm doing and the people that I'm working with, that is now changing. And in the next 12 to 18 months, our heads are going to be well and truly above the parapet. And we will be individually recognised as what we are, property sources for registrations as well. So in preparation for all the property sources out there, what have you been surprised that most people don't know about when you've been doing your talks and people giving you feedback for your book? The feedback that comes back to you where people are saying, you know, I had no idea that that was the case. I had no idea that I had to do this or had to follow this process. What's the thing that you're most surprised that people aren't aware of? The thing that has really most surprised me and taken me back is the amount of time and effort that people put into trying to get around the rules (laughs) rather than follow them. And it's at every presentation that I do. It's at most telephone calls that I take. And one of the key things that they come up with, and some trained uh, sources who train are guilty of this, of saying to the trainees that if you work with me, I'm a compliant source, which nine times out of 10, they aren't anyway. You can send your deals through me and work, operate under my compliance and you're okay. It doesn't make any difference. I'll just pay you a fee. But I've researched this and spoken to the ombudsman, to data protection, to money laundering and insurance brokers. And their comment is what I tell everyone that if you are insured and you are registered for compliance, that covers your company and your employees. It does not cover someone who isn't your employee. And no sorcerer is going to employ another sorcerer because they would have to pay tax and national insurance and offer them a pension plan. Mm. That isn't going to happen. So ergo, my interpretation is from research that I've done, that you would have to be an employee of that company to be covered by their registrations and their insurance, even if they have it. Just slightly off to a tangent, how often do you check for compliance changes? Every day. Really? And that's because you're part of a um, like um, a mailing list that you will get compliance changes, or do you actually have to go and hunt them down yourself? I have set up Google Alerts for about every um. conceivable compliance phrase that you can imagine the problem is that it comes in from uh, us china and everywhere else as well you have to filter it 
but I get the sort of the heads up of things that may be coming in from that. But you have to physically sit down and read it, obviously, and understand what you're reading. But yeah, that's how I do it. You can register with Information Commissioner's Office for Data Protection and HMRC for money laundering for updates. So if they're going, they have any impending updates, they will notify you of it. And they're very good at doing that. And HMRC run webinars for estate agency businesses. And whilst it isn't exactly what you need, there's a lot of really good basic information there and you can ask questions of them. And I found them really okay to work with, actually, strangely enough, for HMRC. So one of the things that I find whenever I listen to your presentation is there are, and you just mentioned them a minute ago, there are a lot of grey areas. It's not black and white because I think, as you said, a lot of the legislation hasn't gone through a call and therefore the line in the sand hasn't been drawn. And therefore, what does that mean for sources? That comes back to them and their individual responsibility, right? Yes. If you were to speak to HMRC and it's actually written into the regulations for money laundering, is that it is a risk-based assessment based on your assessment of your own business. And what they say is that every business's risks will be different. So you have to have a really good knowledge of your business and where your risks are for money laundering. The same is true of data protection. No one policy will cover all businesses. So when you write a policy and a procedure for your data protection for your company, it has to come from a point where you understand how your company operates, where you get your personal data from, how you hold it, how you will delete it when required, how a client can access that information, and what the security measures are on all of the sources that you get your personal data from. So from argument's sake, you know I'm OCD about this kind of thing, Chris. I know you do. I'm well aware of that. You know that. When I knew that GDPR was coming in, I got an audit program for GDPR for the company. And I actually scared the bejeebas out of myself when I did it because I took it right from the ground as to where do I gather personal data from. So for argument's sake, if you have a sit-down meeting with an investor, you will write personal data down on a notepad as you're writing at the moment for what I'm saying and you will take it away from you. What do you then do with that? That is personal data. I'm going to burn it now. But you see what I'm saying? You have to be aware as a company as to where you're gathering all of your data. Business cards. People say, well, everybody give out business cards. They do. But on that business card, if the email address is personal, as mine is Tina at, that is a personal email address. It has my personal mobile number on that is personal. What do you do with your business cards when you've entered them into your CRM and they are no longer required for you? I'm not saying that putting them in the bin and someone finding them is going to get you fined by ICO for binning your business cards and not doing something legally. But I think what people have to sit down and think about is exactly where they bring in their data. And then when they finish with the paperwork data, what do they do with it? And this has to all be included in your policy. And that's why there are so many shredding companies that have, have popped up in the last, what, five, six, seven years? Yes. To take care of exactly that, that kind of thing. But then if you're really going to be pedantic about it, you've got to say, if they take it off-site, how do you know that they're not reading through it and filtering out the personal data before they shred it? And this is another grey area, right? It because is it another grey area. it your responsibility and, and taking, yes. it, taking it that, to that step. Because if, you're, yeah. if a body asks you about it, it's completely your responsibility. It you have is. to be able to answer these questions, right? And going back to the original question, that's why you have to decide as a company exactly what your stance is and what your 
values might be the wrong word, but how you value data and where your level of protection for your client is going to sit and then work your policies and procedures around that. And the same is exactly the same for any of the regulations. There isn't this is right and that is wrong. It's an educated guess, but working to a level which you perceive is much higher than is actually required. And a lot of people turn around and say to me, you dot the I's and you cross the T's, Tina, but you don't have to do all of that to be compliant. And my comment is, you're absolutely right. From your level, compliance may be a lot lower than mine. I really do raise it and crank the levels on it. But what you have to ask yourself is, if there was a case against you for anything, regardless of what the legislation, the regulation was, could you hand on heart in court, stand up and say that your company had done all that it could do to prevent whatever the query was that you were taken to court for in the first place. And if you can, then that's absolutely fine. Hand on heart, you can do that. If you would say, well, I would cringe and think, well, maybe I wasn't doing enough, then maybe you really need to have a look about how you're operating as a business. As you can hear, Tina knows her stuff. (laughs) So what I'm going to do now is I've got two questions for you. I haven't okay. shown you these questions. So again, we're gonna, I'm going to test you <laughs> for how much you actually know off the top of your head. But before I ask you these questions, can you just tell us uh, the name of your book and where the Tina Walsh World Tour is going to be pulling into next? <laughs> uh, the name of the book is Property Sourcing Compliance, Keeping You on the Right Side of the Law. It is available on Amazon or you can have a look on our own site, which is www.getpropertycompliant.co.uk forward slash the book. And the World Tour? And the World Tour. I am next presenting at the Asana Property Meet in Bolton very soon. I can't remember the exact date. <laughs> and you're based in the Northwest. You live in the Northwest, right? So yes. So presumably most of your speaking engagements are in the Northwest? Or no, do you find we, uh, all over the, place? the furthest afield that we've done was a property investors group known as PIG, and that was St. Hostel in Cornwall. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, London. Uh, we haven't been Wales yet. I'm doing a presentation next month in Bristol, which is the first time in Bristol that I'll be doing a presentation. So we get all over wherever we're invited. And we have 19 booked in at the moment this year. Right, okay. And I can probably double that. Uh, but after that, it's going into 2020. So Wales needs to up its game. And get, it really get does, compliant. yeah. Yeah, How Wales. Scotland? Have you? I've never been invited up to Scotland. By the way, in case anyone's interested, the compliance regulations for Scotland are the same. The only difference is obviously the purchase regulations for purchasing properties in Scotland is different than ours. And I'm not aware of that. But I'm happy to venture just over the border. (laughs) On to the questions. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. This one's about source of funds. So there seems to be a greater emphasis on this now. Can you give us an idea of how to position this question, respond to any objections and understand what evidence we get in? Do you mean by source of funds, do you mean deposits and reservation fees that some sources take ahead of the deal completing, Chris? Yes. Okay. For clarity, it isn't illegal to do that. You can do that if you wish, although a lot of investors will refuse to pay you a fee up front. We personally don't take reservation fees or deposits up front for any of our deals. We work on trust. However, for those of you that want to do it, there are a few things to think about. One is... If your reservation fee or deposit is going to be refundable in full or in part at any stage during the sourcing process, it must be held in what is known as a client account. Now, to set up a client account, not all banks will do that for you. In fact, a lot of people at the moment are struggling setting client accounts up for whatever reason with certain banks. You will have to be registered for money laundering to be able to do it. 
and you will have to be registered with one of the property ombudsmen. Some banks ask for both, some only one, some won't set up at all. And you may have to change the bank that you're working with in order to be able to do it. The reason that you have to do that is that it has to be kept completely separate from your own business money. The reason being is that because it's in part or in full refundable, it is not your funds until the deal is completed and no refund in part or in full will be due. And then at that point, you can move the funds from the client account into your own business account. It has to be separately audited annually by a qualified accountant and the records must be kept and available to view at any stage. Legally, you must also have client account insurance for that. So guys, if you are going to take a reservation fee or a deposit for your source deals and they are going to be in part or in full refundable, legally you must hold those funds in a client account until such stage as the property has been purchased and no refund will be uh, available. I absolutely swear to you that Tina hasn't got any writing, anything. You haven't even got a notepad and pen in front of you at the moment. So that was all off the top of her head, which I think you'll agree is outstanding. Next question, last question. Okay. This is about AML, PEPs and sanctions. Hmm. So as part of AML, which is anti-money laundering, we need to ensure investors are not a politically exposed person or PEP or are not on any sanctions lists. Can you explain why and what to do if this is the case? It's a legal requirement under the money laundering regulations that we do due diligence checks on our investors that come through to us and it's our responsibility to carry that out. A PEP is a politically exposed person and the regulations have been updated and widened recently that it doesn't actually, your investor does not have to be the MP or the politically related person. They can be a relative of that person, a close friend of that person, an employee of that person or simply an associate. And the reason for that is the powers that be believe that they could be more open to being bribed and so they consider them to be a higher risk for money laundering purposes than the average Joe Bloggs on the street. So if they're at a higher risk of being bribed, taking it to the nth degree, then presumably they're morally compromised and therefore just asking them whether they work for a politically exposed person wouldn't be good enough because if they're going to be morally compromised then they're not, the chance of them uh, lying on their answer is higher. So then, yes. therefore, what do, you, what do you do? Therefore, it is stated in the money laundering regulations that you must immediately go to enhanced due diligence on that person simply because they are categorised as a PEP or a politically exposed person or, as we said before, someone who is related to them or associated with them. And that's basically what you have to do. That's fantastic. Big thank you to Tina. For we didn't cover in. the sanctions. Do you want me to cover the sanction list for you as well, which you mentioned? Yeah. Otherwise, he will he will hold you over the coals if I haven't answered both parts of the question. Okay, then. <laughs> the sanctions list is basically a list set up by the National Crime Agency for, it can be countries, but also individuals who you absolutely must not work with, that they are monitoring or watching or are aware that they are money laundering in various forms. There is a sanctions list on the National Crime Agency site. However, it's not sure as to how often it's updated. And if anyone's wondering how we carry out our due diligence on our investors at the PEP level and the sanctions level, it's very, very difficult to do it manually yourself by doing Google searches. We use an electronic checking system and I'm happy to share with you one that we use. It is called ETSOS, E-T-S-O-S. So the sanctions are based on the country? Individuals as well, but there are some countries that are highly recommended that you don't work with. And if that person comes from the country but isn't based in that country... 
the sanctions from the country would sort of follow them or you would use that to go to enhance due diligence? I, I think, especially if you're, you're starting out, I, I would leave them alone. If they come from a country where it's suggested you don't work with them for your own safety and for the sake of not risking a 14 years imprisonment sen- sentence, I would go look for another investor. You know that guy that sent emails a few years ago? He was from Nigeria and mm. he had, you know, about £56 million pounds hidden oh, yeah. in a mattress under his bed. Yeah. Did you ever get in touch with that guy? No, I don't think so. He's never got in touch with me either, actually. (laughs) I don't blame him. (laughs) Brilliant, Tina. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your input. And now it's time for the tip of the week. And this week, because we've got somebody who is so knowledgeable about compliance, we're going to ask Tina to do the tip of the week. So Tina, have you got a tip of the week for us and our listeners? Thanks, Chris. Yes, it's geared around a major point that I'm trying to get across at the moment. There are a lot of sources, because of what I'm doing and everyone else, are now coming out into social media and declaring that they are compliant sources. And trust me, if you are only registered with the professional bodies that you need to register for, that is not compliance. So my top tip is that if you've been told that registering with the Ombudsman for data protection and money laundering and getting a bit of PI insurance makes you compliant, that is not the truth. That is not the case. You need to look into it a lot deeper than that or get in touch with me for a chat because registrations are the tip of the iceberg, guys. So now we're going to let Tina loose for three hours on our new intake of franchisees to scare the bejesus out of them. Thank you very much, Tina. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sourced Property Podcast. Visit sourced.co for free training videos and blogs 